Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is Dan Taylor. My name is John Licton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education. Now on to the episode. Hi, and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. Here with my co-host, John Mixon. John, at a secret location, how are you doing right now? I'm doing well, thank you. It's really good to be here. And nice to see you, Dan. It's been a while. We've been all so busy. And uh, looking forward to this conversation. Just wanted to say that we have a LinkedIn now uh, page for our podcast. And thank you. A lot of fantastic feedback and people are joining it. And also, I want to thank all the people that send us these text messages and comments uh, supporting us and also complimenting our guests on the learning that they're sharing. So that's always very encouraging to hear the conversations that we're having are having an impact on various school leaders, educators, and audience members. So we really appreciate your support. I know Dan and I really appreciate getting the feedback and those messages through LinkedIn. Yeah, we love messages it. are really appreciated. And thank you because it, it kind of confirms that what we're trying to do is working. And uh, I think it's important to have these conversations. No, I mean, I think people underestimate, this is a bit of behind the scenes podcasting. Sorry, we'll get to, we'll get to our fantastic guests in a second. But uh, like, when you have a small podcast like ours with a very niche audience, and we're not making any money out of this, you know, there's a, a net loss financially for all the time we're spending on it. And we're not, we don't, you know, we briefly had a sponsor, but we haven't even tried to, we, we've had people approach us, but we haven't even tried to monetize it. But when you get an email from someone saying, oh, I love this episode, and they talk about something specific, it's like, it's fantastic. You know, that that is like the best thing about it from, from my point of view, when, when people like it. Just people you've and never I, met I before, you've no contact myself with. into that argument. You know, I would like to throw my head and just say, I have been listening to these podcasts and I'm actually kind of in shock to even be invited because the, the caliber of people that you come on to share their experiences and the impact that that has on me as I'm trying to lead my little school here in the corner of the Czech Republic, it's huge. It's extremely uh, beneficial. Uh, I, I I feel like I get to to get in contact and touch with people who are really making some changes and and to learn from them. And if I have my list, just the last episode with Dr. Helen Kelly, really informative. It was nice to hear the interview with Chip from International School of Prague down the road here, and and everything in between the the three guests you had on Chat GPT in January that that launched me into also trying to get my head around what are we going to do as a school in, in, in my location and with, with what I have. So sorry to steal the microphone, but no, uh, you're not, not at all. Brett, right. I, think, I think, Brett, what you're highlighting is I, I want to thank our guests because they're extremely generous. They don't get paid for this. They do it out of their own time. And how often they're willing beyond the podcast to interact and support people. I want to thank all our guests for your generosity, because I know it means a lot to our guests that you're willing, because sometimes it's intimidating. Uh, if you're an expert in an area or you've written a book or yep. you're a school leader, but I really need to compliment every single guest that's come on in their uh, kindness and willing to share out. So thank you, Brett, for highlighting that. Definitely. Well, I mean, I guess Brett's already said hi, so I'd like to introduce officially Brett. Brett Gray is the director of the Ostrava International School in the east of the Czech Republic. Um, Czech Republic's got a very special place in both mine and John's heart. I still live here. John had some very happy years in the, 
in the Czech Republic. At least I think they were happy years. You've always spoke for Yes, nine very happy years. Nine years yeah. were wonderful. And my son still lives in Prague. So there you go. I still have a connection. Yeah, and um, and Brett uh, got in touch recently. Now, Brett runs um, a small school uh, in the east of the country, like I mentioned. So that's really interesting because Brett, um, I don't know much about his background. I don't know much about your background, Brett. But what's interesting is you've got an interesting education background. And you've also started a couple of schools, which to me is fascinating, like a huge, interesting undertaking. So I want to quickly talk about your background. And then you've recently become an IB World School. You've gone full IB, the first school in the Czech Republic. I'm sure International School of Prague is is a... Uh, devastated that someone's still in their thunder but uh they're going through the process right now but uh, i'd love to get into that so if, if that's cool um brett we'll, we'll we'll kick it off great so maybe i would try to paint the picture this way uh yeah. i came to czechoslovakia in january 1991 as a recent graduate of broadcast journalism and french wow. with no teaching background but an incredible incredible interest, a very deep interest in what was going on in this former communist country as it was transitioning from communism to we shall see. And uh, for me, Václav Havel was a big hero, a big example of uh, trying to uh, promote peaceful change. And I, I basically came over thinking I would be writing definitive definitive articles for the New York Times about this transition <laughs> and teaching a little bit on the side. And uh, I ended up at a Czech gymnasium in a small town called Bilovets, uh, next to the third city of the Czech Republic, Ostrava, and I started teaching English. And I was fortunate enough to start teaching English at a school that had a great reputation in math and physics. And we had kids that I was teaching in the first couple of years who were great, super intelligent. They represented the first generation of, of kids in generations that could even consider studying abroad or even leaving the country freely. And you know, their parents were very supportive of this idea of them trying to experience things that they really lost a chance to experience. Um, and the first couple of years, I helped a few kids get into uh, the University of Chicago in math, uh, Princeton for physics. And I felt like my, my role here as a teacher, and journalism helped me a lot to teach in English, it, it just gave my, my life a lot of meaning. I felt I was participating in this transition from communism to some democratic principles. Um, I stayed at that Czech gymnasium for about 10 years before I started to get quite frustrated because I had the sense that what I was trying to bring and the effort and the energy that I was devoting to a kind of learning process that I had grown up with in Montreal, where I, I grew up, bilingual, open to the world, very used to you know, people from all kinds of different countries and more or less getting along as long as we could deal with the French and English issues between us. Uh, you know, I just, I felt like I was struggling a lot at with the Czech system, with the approach of Czech schools that uh, 10 years after the fall of communism were still all about memorization, telling the teacher what the teacher had just told them, labeling kids, 
really no clue about well-being that that isn't even an issue or an, or a problem for I'm sorry to say I think even Czech schools to to this day for most of them I did a quick count uh, earlier today uh, and <clears throat> discovered that uh, in the last 18 years the Czech Republic has had 15 ministers of education uh, I've met wow. about half of them and of course, that makes it absolutely impossible to create the kind of approach to create, you know, to, to a national system of education that's in desperate need of transition. <laughs> it makes that transition all but impossible. Uh, the the longest Brett, do you serving think this? Yeah? Go ahead. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. Do you think this high turnover of ministers is because the position is not considered as an important position, or is it just because of the frustration? of the bureaucracy or maybe the, the strategy and vision? I think it's all of the above. And I, I suspect it's probably similar in a lot of countries around the world. These are political posts and the people filling them don't necessarily have a background in education or particularly maybe even an interest in education. I, I can't speak for all of the, the, the ministers of education in the Czech Republic. Uh, I have met some that, that went into the job giving it their best. I've met others that really just didn't have a clue and didn't seem that interested in. And the school system keeps running whatever minister is there, but it does make it difficult for a state system to, 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 to make that kind of change and direction needed that, you know, if we're all looking uh, to Finland as an example of a country that 30 years ago made a decision and and stuck with it through various you know governments to try to you know change and 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 end up towards uh, you know the upper end of the international testing uh, system so uh, the Czech republic just was as far away from that as you can imagine and for me that was really frustrating so without dragging it on too much longer i i i left the Czech system after about 10 years. And I started, I spent two or three years working for externally for the city of Ostrava and the regional authority. And I was translating and I was helping, trying to like present the city uh, for its marketing purposes. And I was meeting uh, eventually companies that were coming into the city and the region thinking that they might build a factory or move an office. And I was trying to tell them about this part of the country that I felt was a very livable and nice part of the Czech Republic and uh, to try to help them make the decision to, to land here. And it was difficult because of course, one of the most important things that you'll need if you're gonna bring over management teams and create a factory for a thousand workers is you need an international school. And Ostrava didn't have one. And I, I spent a couple of years working with the city of Ostrava to try to create one after realizing that we're in a real chicken and egg situation. Uh, there was no international school because there wasn't any international community to speak of. And there's no international community because they can't send their kids anywhere. <laughs> and uh, we, we even reached out to International School of Prague if by chance they wouldn't like to open uh, some kind of a campus or extended you know, school under the auspices of ISP. And, and at the, in, in those days, there really was no interest, obviously, for obvious reasons. Um, I then went into a project with the city of Ostrava to say, okay, we will create something here. 
And we tried as best we could to create a kind of public-private partnership, but again, in a context, in a legal context in the Czech Republic where that doesn't exist. <laughs> and uh, so what we glued something together anyways, and I have to say what we were able to put together was uh, a Czech gymnasium. So this means that it was officially registered with the Czech Ministry of Education. The output of that the school would be the Czech maturita exams, but we were allowed to teach a bunch of things in English. So at least a first start. A few years after that, I launched another school with some partners that would be a fully international style school, uh, independent of the Czech Ministry of Education, where the outcome would be, the output would be the diploma program uh, and graduation exams. What we were trying to do, and it took, it, we, we didn't have it so defined right at the beginning, but we wanted to try to have a Czech system where the Czech families would feel confident. A lot of Czech, they do some stuff in English, an English school with a DP output, and try to get these two schools to work together so the kids can meet each other and the expats can have a bit of a Czech experience and the Czechs can open up to, uh, to the expats. Unfortunately, that really didn't work. It created all kinds of complications because both of the schools were kind of dependent on the other. We had a low number of staff, even low number of kids. And uh, what started off as a great idea became practically really untenable. And you know, now that I'm in this game for almost 20 years of trying to build a real international school in the Czech Republic, in this corner of the Czech Republic, where there's, there's no top international management, there's no diplomats, it's, it's really lower level managers and, and locals. Um, I came to the conclusion that I really can't try to have two schools that are cooperating uh, with each other, that they each really have to serve a slightly different clientele. I felt it was a bit of a defeat. I had really wanted this to work, but I found that I was really not able to make a truly international school or the best kind of Czech gymnasium with lots to do in English. And so I abandoned that. I also came to understand that I think it's very, very difficult for students and it's not in their well-being interest to try to do simultaneously uh, the state examination, the maturita, and the DP program simultaneously. It's a lot of doubled work. It's a lot of <laughs> pain and sacrifice, and it's just not worth it. It ends up hurting your final results on both ends. Uh, th Brett, that's when you were experience. looking when you were looking at this model of having a national model and an international model, did you go like to Germany? I know uh, some German international schools have gone with that model. I know in Switzerland and some European countries that's happened. Did you look at those or is there something very unique about the Czech bureaucracy and the system that made it just not possible? 
I think the starting point for us, I, so first and foremost, I didn't really go to other countries, to other models uh, uh, to, to see. I think in those days I was a young cowboy who just said, okay, we're going to figure this out and we're going we're gonna to make it work. And I ended up knocking my, my head against the wall. Looking back, it might have been a good idea to test the waters or gain some experience from, from others. I think for me, the issue is that the current Czech legislation uh, concerning uh, kind of all aspects of what a school day should look like, that periods should be 45 minutes long, that there should be breaks at this time, um, that the, the emphasis of the whole project in the Czech Republic is still uh, examinations that are fact-based uh, at, at the end of the road. And, and actually no time for real skills development or anything holistic. And uh, that legislation for, for, for those schools, and there are schools in the Czech Republic that really are trying to change. They want to be 21st century learning uh, facilities. But they're, in my opinion, they're up against a system that is just too inflexible and, and on the one hand, and also just leads you back to, okay, what have you memorized? What, what are the things that you have in your head that you can go then to your entrance examinations for the Czech universities and just spill back out on, onto the paper? Um, but I, I want to ask you about, um, I mean, I, I think I'm fairly, I think compared to the average person in the street, I'm, I'm relatively entrepreneurial, but the thought of starting a school would just fill me with such fear and dread. Like, did you do it just because you didn't know, know any better? Were you just like, oh, how hard can it be? Or did you really like think I can do this huge undertaking? Or did you really just not know what you were getting yourself into? Uh a huge degree of naivete and ignorance is an absolute <laughs> foundation for trying to build anything like this, uh, at least in this corner of the Czech Republic. And I would imagine for almost anyone in a similar environment. Ostrava is a former industrial town. Uh, it was the, the steel heart of the Czech Republic when, when I would say 10 years after the transition from communism to democracy, that's when unemployment really started to hit hard in this region. They were able to keep these big steel factories and mines alive for roughly 10 years after the fall of communism. But by 1999, the unemployment rate in the region was getting close to 18%. And I'm, I'm saying this because this was, on the one hand, a really kind of crazy time to try to start an international school. I started the process around 2002, 2003, but it was an opportunity because at that time on the national level, the Czech government said, okay, we're going to be giving all kinds of investment incentives to companies that will bring in uh, jobs and, and create factories and create work uh, in the Czech Republic. And Ostrava was a hard, luck case, let's say. It, it needed a lot of attention because the transition is so dramatic to turn coal miners into computer programmers. It doesn't happen overnight. And with that, since I was working with the city of Ostrava, with the region, I was meeting with companies like Hyundai that three years after we created our school, started building its only European factory. 
I was at meetings like that for the city where there was this movement of, okay, we can bring these companies in. We need this school. The city helped to create this public-private partnership in the first step. And that gave me the confidence uh, and the confidence uh, of my two partners uh, that, that joined me in this adventure to say, okay, let, let's give it a try. We have, the, the city is backing us, so it, we're, we're not going to, to bankrupt ourselves in this process. We have a bit of a pillow. What right. we didn't realize is that having this back, having the city declare that it will have your back does not mean that the political interests locally are not going to try to savage you. So that was another part of the adventure because <laughs> why, we represented something very you? What, was the, what was the issue there? I think the biggest problem is that there was a feeling from the local schools that they also have some English lessons. After all, they had spent some time converting their Russian language teachers to English language teachers. So they <laughs> could be an international there, yeah. school too. The, their roofs wow. were leaking uh, when it was raining. They needed money. Why are you throwing this money out to rich people or to a private school? We should invest more money in the local schools. And the truth is they're right. There should have been a whole lot more investment in education as a whole at that time. Yeah. That's, that's so fascinating. So that didn't go over um, well for some, yeah. And where, where is the school today? Because I want to get onto the, the IB stuff because that's fascinating. How many, uh, I know you're pretty small. What's the story today? How yeah. many students and what, what kind of places do they come from? Okay, so when we talk about the Ostrava International School, we have about 170 kids aged 3 to 19, basically one class in each uh, age group or one group in each, in each class. So mm -hmm. uh, average is 12.9 uh, kids per class. Our biggest class is 20. Nice. Yeah, yeah. we are small. Uh, we have, uh, in terms of uh, staffing, roughly 45 full-time teachers, a few part-time and admin. So the ratio of student to, to teacher is, is, is very nice. Um, and the nationalities, currently 37 backgrounds, nationalities and, and cultural backgrounds. Um, and so and these are... Includes... Sorry, go but ahead. these are then the students from Hyundai. So you start seeing these companies coming in, like you mentioned, Hyundai three years later bought the uh, built the plant. So gradually, through attrition and through patience, you start having a market that developed for your model. Yeah, we I think it's very important to say uh, we have a large Korean minority uh, at the school. Interestingly enough, we don't have many kids specifically from Hyundai. Hyundai has most of their management and their kids in Prague. And uh, those dads will commute uh, towards Ostrava on Monday morning and go home in the afternoon. But we have a lot of the Korean supplier companies. Hyundai brought along 12 or 15 oh. other Korean companies that make the doors and the windows and the motors. And, and then they pulled it all together in the, in the Hyundai factory. And that, of course, is a big opportunity for a lot of Czech suppliers and, and suppliers from other countries as well. So we have uh, at our school, as, as I said, a, a large Korean minority and then a bunch of other smaller companies, many of whom are part of that overall supply chain uh, or doing other things as well. I mean, uh, Ostrava has also branched out in, in a few other areas, not just automotive. Uh, and uh, again, we have a trickle of you know, a trickle. We have a, a 
small number of, let's say, kids from India, from France, from Belgium, uh, and, and other countries. But n we don't really have another huge uh, industrial sector that's, that's feeding us now. So if we're talking about what's a business strategy, for us, it's quite important to know that Hyundai is going to be here for the long term. We believe that they are. They're, they're actually expanding into you know, batteries and, and, and newer technologies in the region. And uh, so we're, we're, we're happy about that. That provides stability. And uh, there are some other projects going on uh, in Ostrava that, that down the road might benefit us. And at the same time, we hope to expand interest uh, within the Czech community. But um, maybe, Dan, to get to your question, I have to say we've basically been on the front line of trying to explain and share and open up the IB to the local community. It's a very hard sell in the Czech language. Uh, let's, and, well, you and, know what, let's, let's just quickly, could you just say, like, what is an IB World School? What is IB? Just, I mean, I guess most people are going to know, but it, it, I mean, I think a lot of people work for schools where maybe they just do the diploma program or they do part of the IB. Uh, and what is what is the will school and, and what, what does the whole program look like? Well, I'll say what it means to me. Um, and it doesn't mean the same thing to all people. For me, the International Baccalaureate, the mission of the International Baccalaureate from the beginning, and it has been developing since 1968, since the first school in, in uh, Geneva, began presenting Wait, the John program. John actually works, funnily enough. <laughs> um, I had the chance to do uh, a, uh, an EASC-CIS accreditation there about 10 years ago, and it was a, a fabulous entrance into, you know, the foundation of the IB and, and, and where it comes from. And so where it comes from is a, is a place of, look, uh, we cannot have our kids going around from country to country and every country they stop in, they, they're going to experience a state system that they don't really understand. We need to put some kind of a curriculum together that will allow uh, children in this situation to, uh, to have you know, a fighting chance to, to do well and not have to start over every time they, they move. That first idea for me has grown into the IB's mission, as it openly and proudly declares, is to make the world a better place, to help improve the world. And, uh, and what I really like about the IB is that they, I feel that there's a very honest effort to directly and openly say, so what does that really mean? Because it sounds really fluffy, especially if you put it in Czech language, uh, make the world a better place and hold hands, have kumbaya moments. No, it's really a lot of hard work. And, and it continues to be more and more of a challenge as we all start to realize that making the world a better place really means looking at the question of equity, looking at empathy, working with burnout, whether it's your, your own staff or, or the kids that are coming from another part of the world. It, it means trying to, to behave in a sustainable way and to consider what's going on in the earth. All of these for me are, are embedded in the IB, in the IB learner profile, in how we want kids to be thinkers and risk takers and to try and, and to do something in the world, but to have a sense of what it really means to be in the world. 
an IB education for me means that kids learn about themselves. They learn to be proud of who they are, even if they come from a very strange and weird background compared to the people that are in their classroom. They should have a voice. They should be respected for who they are. And they should learn the tools to respect others for who they are and to be part of a communication and a dialogue. And again, all of these are very difficult things to kind of catch and to throw into a curriculum. Uh, uh, the way you do that is through the methodology, through the, the approach, the way that you assess, the values that you put on various kinds of assessment. And uh, so that's for me what the IB is. And, and the mission of my school, I think very, very closely aligns with the, the mission of the IB. Now, you mentioned the DP before. DP is by far the most popular of the IB programs. It's the oldest of the programs, and it's the program that kids go through before they head off to university. And um, you were having this discussion a couple of months ago with Chip uh, Kimball from uh, the International School of Prague when, when you asked him, so how does that then <laughs> conflict with what the universities want when we're focusing on 45 points and, and the academics of it all? And for me, this is really one of the struggles within the IB because the real essence of the IB, it's easy to get lost in the DP program. There's lots of schools that just focus simply on getting points and, and pushing bright kids on through a point system and kind of not really focusing much on the other holistic elements that I was talking about before. And my feeling is that... Um, there are a lot of schools right now. There are, I don't know how many schools in the Czech Republic, 15 or so, that are offering the diploma program and, for example, the Czech Maturita. And I just don't feel it's a, it's a healthy or honest or IB approach to delivering the IB. It's a status symbol. And if you're the kind of school that uh, really filters out applicants and you only take the best of the best, so maybe the diploma is a nice little cherry on top and the, and the kids uh, can sail into university that way. But for me, the power of the IB is that, and at my school is I take kids where they are. And some of them are just beginning in English and some of them are great at math. And uh, we're in, a, in, we're in a, a classroom environment together. And our goal is to get wherever the kids are up to the next level and not to try to get everybody all at the same level and then be disappointed in those who don't quite make it to the level, level that we had hoped for. I'm as proud of my kids who are accepted at the university around the corner in a, in a, in a subject area that they like as I am of a student who was accepted to Columbia Law School last year and is happy there. Uh, that kid who was accepted at Columbia <clears throat> He was smart. <laughs> he came ready. Uh, the kid who was accepted to the university around the corner, we worked really hard to get him there and we're really proud of him. And that, that's what makes us feel that we're a real school. You know, they both got to the next level, but they started from very different, different parts. So sorry for the long explanation. The IB is, is I, I want our school to live and breathe the best of the IB. Doesn't mean there's like, that there aren't lots and lots of challenges in doing that. Um, when I listen to some of the other uh, people that you've had on the show, I recognize that one of the big advantages that we have is that we are small. 
we can be flexible. If we want to change things, I can make it happen because we are a small group. Uh, I, I have no idea how schools with 4,000 kids and hundreds of employees make those important transitions. Yeah, with great difficulty. I know. Uh, well, um, could you outline, Brett, just for, for people who, who don't know about all the, what the four kind of levels are that make up the IB uh, program? Okay, well, at our school, we, we are considered an IB continuum school. That means that we provide the primary years program. That's roughly the equivalent of most grades one to five, sometimes one to six, depending on where you might be in the world. Then there's a middle years program that takes five years. Kids are generally 10 or 11 years old, finish up when they're 15 or 16. And then the diploma program, these are the last two years of an IB education um, and really a preparation for, for university. And the diploma program is, is organized in a way uh, so that you can take higher level or standard level courses. And if you kind of know where you'd like to go and what you'd like to study, you can choose subjects that might give you a leg up when you're making those applications to university. And also, um, mathematics within the IB program is at a fairly high level, uh, so much so that some uh, universities will, if it's a general education requirement, for example, many American universities will just give you credit if you've completed the IB. You know, the DP is and interesting. My, my brother's kids are going through this now. They're in sixth form at a boarding school in the UK, and that school does the diploma program and it does A-levels. And my niece, who's really, really clever, um, really struggled with the diploma program because you have to do a language, because of all the subjects she did it. And actually, my, my brother took her out and put her into A-levels because just it was like, okay, she can do four A-levels in all science and math. She's a great in science and math. She'll get into a university. She'll get a good grade. She's yep. going to struggle in like half the diploma program. And, and I'm not saying that's the reason to do it because exams are definitely not everything, but it is, it is hard. I know from a lot of people that it, it is hard. You need a breadth of, of um, knowledge across subjects. And I think that, yeah, the, I think the holistic breadth and having to dip into sciences and humanities, and then you have the theory of knowledge, which is a requirement, which is all about philosophy and thinking. So it, it's quite broad. And that broadness also goes quite deep. So I think, yeah. Dan, your point's an interesting one. Yeah. And Brett, as well, you didn't, yeah. there's actually also an early years of IB program. I really don't know hardly anything about it because I don't know many schools doing it. But is that, is that I guess you, you don't have students that in the early years level. So we do. I have to say the early years is still a bit of a work in progress uh, with the IB. So yeah. essentially, our early years center is a part of our primary program. And, uh, and it follows the same units of inquiry. But of course, at a very, very different level, I mean, kids between the age of three and the age of six are really uh, totally different machines and require totally, uh, you know, different ap approaches to, you know, the learning and, and uh, getting them to understand some of the concepts, you know, but it's possible, it's joyful, uh, but it's not actually a separate program. The, the IB did come up with a somewhat separate program at the other end, and maybe for those students who really struggle with doing all six uh, subjects, there's a program called the Career Program, the CP, and that's uh, that's becoming, excuse me, more and more popular. Uh, 
at DP schools. We were also considering uh, offering it, but my school is so small, it's very difficult to, to make that uh, happen at, at our level. And yeah. for some, it's a little bit more technically focused, um, but there's also very interesting DPCP programs uh, for uh, example, student athletes. There's a, a wonderful program in cooperation with the uh, World Academy of Sports in Australia, made up of former Olympians who realized that, boy, when their Olympic careers were over, uh, they had no qualification to to do anything. They 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 spent so much time as student athletes focusing on on being the best in the world that. Uh, when, when that part of their lives ended, there was nothing to fall back on. And they've made this decision to team up with the IB and to try to make it easier and more possible for students in that situation to actually complete a secondary school qualification and, and to be able to go to university. Fascinating. It's, it's, uh, yeah, and, it, and that's what I, that's, for me, it reinforces the, the IB is taking the education and well-being of, of students really seriously. At yeah. the IB conference in October, I think, you know, the, the thing that had to be said and, and was said out loud repeatedly is that, unfortunately, an IB style of education is expensive. It takes money uh, to, to provide, and by definition, then, it is, it's limited to either people or uh, school systems that have decided they want to invest in that. And in our case, yeah. specifically in this corner of the Czech Republic, um, we are not part, we are not considered a part of the Czech education system. We are considered removed. We are the problem of another state or another accreditation organization. <laughs> we receive absolutely no money from the Czech state. So everything that all of the all of the bills that we have, we we have to to generate it through school fees, and that is a limitation. So, so you your finances basically are dependent on the amount of students that sit in chairs in your classrooms. That's the only income flow that you have. That's the only income flow we have, and we we often don't even qualify for other state programs. For example, for COVID relief. Uh, we just wow. not labeled as a school. So, you know, we, we just <laughs> competitively, it's a big disadvantage to be in, uh, in the situation on the one hand, on the other yeah. hand, however, we have freedom. It comes yeah. at a cost. Yeah. We have to generate our income ourselves. And unfortunately, again, we're in a market where local businesses really don't, understand the value of supporting education. It's very hard for us to get, even amongst the, the companies that are paying the school fees for our kids, it's very hard for them. To, it's very hard to get them to sponsor anything more than, than that. You know, they, so they, most of your parents get a stipend from their employer to go to your school. Our, our, our percentage self-payers, so parents are saying, I'm going to make the financial sacrifice to go to your school. Um, I would say uh, not most of the families, uh, but uh, we do have, I don't know if I were to say percentage, probably 20 to 30% of the families, depends on the year and the, what, what, what the companies are up to, have their uh, uh, school fees paid for either entirely or largely by the company. 
it, de it depends on what the company is able to offer. The rest of our, our families, they're paying out of pocket. And we wow. also really do not offer uh, discounts. We're not in a position to, you know, help support uh, many families. We do, especially since we, we have the Ukrainian arrivals uh, last year. We have uh, now 10 Ukrainian kids. Some of them we're trying to support uh, with some kind of discount. But other than that, uh, we're just not in a position to be able to offer that. And we don't have the local corporate interest to build up some funds to, to yeah, help yeah. bring kids through. Yeah. So that's quite awesome. challenging to be in that situation where you have this very yeah. tight financial income coming in and 70% of your parents are paying out of their own pocket. That's a huge commitment to the belief of what your mission is and what your school is. That's really interesting. That, that must be quite stressful sometimes, Brett. Uh, budgeting is always fun, but I guess it's the same for everyone. Um, I think we've come to accept the reality that we will always be a small school, that our teachers will always be wearing many hats. We don't expect any opportunity for huge growth. And to be honest, I wouldn't really want to grow much bigger than we are. I'd be happy if we yeah. moved from an average of 12.9 kids per class to 16 or 17 kids per class. If we could do that, we could pay for a whole lot more stuff. Uh, but, but where we are, I think with the focus on the kids, on the belief in the IB, uh, if we can maintain what we're doing, that will make me happy. You know, it, at the beginning of this podcast, we were talking about, you know, some of the amazing guests that you've been able to, to bring on and, and, you know, what they can share. I have to say one of the lingering feelings that I, I always have is that we are really a small school trying to play in the big leagues of international schools. We are really yeah. trying to incorporate and implement all of the things that we recognize are important, but it, it really is financially a big challenge for us. Yes. Uh, you know, on Brett, note, we're actually to going to, Okay, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say uh, the uh, European uh, Council, Collaborative Council, uh, has a group called Small International Schools Group, and we're actually going to be talking uh, to the organization. And they're really kind of amplifying what you're saying is that a small school yourself wants to provide a robust IB curriculum and activities and that community, but also the challenges that you have as Having as many faculties having to do multiple different tasks, wearing different hats. So I think that really resonates. There are a lot of schools around the world, I think, that you know have these very strong, important visions and missions tied to the IB, but also the challenges of being small and maybe in an area where there's not as much limelight or the spotlight's not often on and doing a phenomenal job. So hats off to you and your community. Well, yeah, thanks. Brett, I wanted to look forward sorry, to more, finding out more about that organization. That's. I will send you the details to them. Yeah. Okay. Are you going to go to the ECIS uh, conference, uh, John? I was thinking. I was looking at it. Uh, no, I'm not going to go to the ECIS conference. No, I'm okay. not going to go. The leadership. 
But uh, Brett, I will continue, uh, connect you with Jeremy, who runs the group. There's, they're all small, tiny international schools in, like in Krakow and Belgrade, just smaller towns, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and in Frankfurt. Uh, it might be a nice way for you to have some people to lean on and also share some of the challenges and opportunities that you guys That's engage great. with. And John, this is, sorry, did I misunderstand? This is part of ECIS, a small small schools group. Is that right? So ECIS has what they call uh, 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 like um, their SIGs. So they're groups, small groups on different topics. And this yeah. one started. A and a lot of the smaller schools were saying they need a voice and uh, we're going to have a chance to talk and hear about them, what they're doing. Got it. That that's great. We're also we we became part of an association, an IB association, <clears throat> roughly seven years ago, called the Association of Central European IB Schools. It was started oh, cool. by Peter Murphy in uh, Vienna, and uh, uh -huh. we've grown in that in the past few years uh, up to now we're at forty three schools over ten countries. Um, and nice. I know that amongst our members, I'm currently serving as the board chair for that association. Among our members, uh -huh. we have some very small schools and we have some, you know, bigger traditional schools as well. And through that network, we're really trying to help each other. But it is difficult for a school like Vienna International School to help out much in my particular situation. But, you know, we have a new member in Skopje and uh, one in Kosovo and uh, a bunch in uh, Austria and now Slovenia. And I, I find more and more of them are, you know, they're beginning like we started 18 years ago and, and they, they're committed and they, they want it. They want to be part of that change. I, I would call it the, yep. the Austro-Hungarian, the Habsburg countries are starting to move and uh, <laughs> want That's to get so out funny. from that history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's a big... Brett, big how gap. is it... For how is it for you? You have been there for, I'm good, I'm just calculating over 20 years. You're a passionate educator. Uh, you decided that what was happening in the Czech schools didn't really align with your own pedagogic compass. And you decided to start this school and you went through many challenges dealing with the kind of shift between public and private and trying to juggle those both. How are you, you know, what, what is your, what keeps you going? What is the thing that keeps driving you? And you're so positive and, you know, you're very passionate about what you're doing. What are some of the things that keep you going? Okay. Well, yeah, as you said, uh, the plan in 1991 was to come for six months or a year and then move on. And that was now 32 years ago. Uh, I have to say, um, I'm doing this, I get a huge sense of satisfaction out of it. I want to create something that my own kids can participate in. But I would mm -hmm. say probably the biggest single driving force, uh, especially over the last four or five years, that has helped to really bring our school to the next level, to really implement the IB the way we believe in it and to really be a CIS and NEASC accredited school. Your listeners may know that's the Council of International Schools and the New England Association of Schools and Colleges. These are the accrediting agencies that really allow us to say we truly are international. I have to say the driving force behind really making the school uh, advance has been my wife, Nikki, who uh, joined the school about seven years ago. 
She has a background as a lawyer. And I think we are a very powerful, dynamic duo. She lays down the law, the principles upon which we can then build our, I don't want to say dreams, but these, 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 the basic mission of our school can, could not have survived just on my best intentions. Uh, as, as much as experiences I have had with the politics and, and the economics of the region, I'm not by nature a politician or really a businessman. And uh, she has, has really helped to keep our feet on the ground so that we can reach for the sky, if I, if I can put it that way. Nice. And because Fantastic. of that, because of that emphasis on what's important, on what, what our principles are, what we believe in, because in her ability to lead difficult discussions and to, to, to get them through to the other side, I really think that we've turned around as well our staff and our recruitment process and the people that are a part of our school today, they believe in what we're doing. They know they don't, none of us always live up to what our mission is. We're constantly following and getting back up again and trying again, but they believe in the founding message of what we're trying to do. And I really believe that that's because we, we've started with principle, the why. <laughs> We, we have a very strong sense of what we are and, and what we can do in our environment, and we want to do it. And, and the, the teachers that come to my school, nobody's getting rich uh, in Ostrava, uh, but they have a chance to have a real life to get to really develop themselves pedagogically and, and to get to the next level and be a part of something that has meaning. Uh, I think there's a lot of people out there who are looking for that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think that's a great place to finish. Uh, I know John's John's gonna get back. Um, thanks very much for joining us. That was really interesting. It's fascinating to see someone who's actually started a school. Interesting to learn about the challenges of being in a small town with not much of an international population uh, and doing the IB. So that that was really interesting. Um, how how can people get in touch with you? Uh, easiest is just. Uh... Write me at the school, the, the abbreviation of the school, it's the Ostrava International School. Uh, our website is toi.s.world. And uh, my email address then is brett, B-R-E-T-T, at toys, T-O-I-S, dot world. I really like also having the, the Earl of World uh, and when those new options came out about 10 years ago, I jumped all over that opportunity. Yeah. And just for our audience to know that Brett is kindly sharing some show notes. So he's going to also give his social media links and resources that you might like to tap into uh, regarding the type of work that he's doing. So do look at the show notes under the episode. Great. Brett, and uh, if I could, I would also like to, to give you a big thank you. What you are doing, whether you realize it or not, is uh, also very, very powerful and helpful and meaningful uh, for the people who are lucky enough to have come across the, the podcast. So best of luck. Keep going. Uh, it's it's worth thank it. Thank you. Even as you said, it's maybe not Thanks. financially all that <laughs> uh, meaningful. It has a lot of meaning. So thank you. Thank you right. for the invitation. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Brett. All the best. And good to see you, Dan. Uh, I think we get to see each other at BET. Yeah. Oh, you come to BET. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll get you on the list for the Google VIP meetup. I'm already there on the list, apparently, according to my boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. My daughter's coming. It's a good time to finish. Yeah. Okay. okay. Anyway, lovely seeing everybody and have a wonderful evening.